Please turn to Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. While you're turning, Paul Dixon, the president of Cedarville College, was successful and sensed he was filled with pride. He told his pastor about his problem with pride. His pastor just laughed at him and then said in all seriousness, what makes you think you have reason to be proud? Then he added, I'll tell you what you should realize is the cause of pride. What's that, Dixon asked. Imagination, his pastor said. Imagination. <laughs> it's been said that an egotist is a self-made man who worships his creator. And such was the case with Nebuchadnezzar. He had conquered many nations and peoples, but he had one enemy he could not conquer, and that was pride. However, God could conquer that enemy. We're in the part of Daniel that has a particular message for the Gentile world. And in the last chapter, God delivered Daniel's three, three friends when they uh, refused to worship an idol. In this chapter, God shows that he's greater than any world power, that he can humble the most mighty of individuals. The entire chapter is interesting because it's in the form of a royal decree by Nebuchadnezzar. It actually is a, a decree written by the pagan king, or formerly pagan, I think, if, if, uh, if I'm correct. It divides easily into three parts, very similar to the other um, events we've had in Daniel, in that the first part's about Nebuchadnezzar and his experience, the second about Daniel and interpreting the dream, and then the last part about Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. I've entitled this Nebuchadnezzar's Second Royal Dream, but as I thought about it, I realized I could have called it Nebuchadnezzar's Worst Nightmare, because it is pretty much. Um, Uh, definitely his worst nightmare. Okay, so starting in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his domain is from generation to generation. In this royal decree, in the first person, so we have the actual report of Nebuchadnezzar himself, he addressed everybody, everywhere, at least throughout his entire kingdom, perhaps even beyond. And, as usual in salutations, he greeted them, wishing them peace. But the purpose of his decree, he said, is to explain the signs and wonders that God had done for him. He started off by briefly praising God for his great signs, mighty wonders, and everlasting kingdom in poetic form. Didn't know that Nebuchadnezzar was a poet. He had that in common with Nero, I guess. Um, and then he began to relate his dream. Now, first of all, he goes into the circumstances. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them. But they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was at a point in his life where he was at ease. He was prosperous. The Aramaic word translated flourishing here means to be green or leafy which is in keeping with the rest of the, of the chapter. But I was flourishing like a plant, yeah, he said. 20, maybe even 30 years may have elapsed since the, uh, the events of chapter 3. So we have a fairly good sized gap here. A lot had happened in there. Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the Assyrians and the Egyptians that had come against him at Carchemish. Defeated them in 605 B.C. He defeated the Egyptians again under Pharaoh Hophra in uh, 588-87 B.C. He had destroyed Jerusalem when it rebelled against him in 587-86 B.C. And there was a future campaign, but it hadn't happened yet, if it's 20 years after anyway. Uh, and that's the Siege of Tyre, uh, close to in modern day, what's now modern-day Lebanon, um, that was not yet to happen until 573-71 BC. So there's a window of time here that was fairly quiet in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He had com uh, completed multiple building projects and he could look with some degree of satisfaction upon his accomplishments. And actually it's very interesting because in terms of inscriptions and history and campaigns, there is a period of time between 582 B.C. and 575 B.C. quiet in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Silent, a matter of fact. Seven-year window where an illness could fit because nothing much was going on in his life. The dream, if I'm right about 582 B.C., the dream would have been one year earlier, 583 B.C., and that would have made Daniel almost 40 years old. So he's, you know, our, our, our teenager has grown up in court, and he's now pretty much at his peak. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that frightened him. The word in the original there means more like startled. It shook him up. It's been translated, the visions and images that passed through my mind terrified me. And the fact that it's using plurals here, fantasies, visions, kept alarming me, all indicate this dream was re recurring. He had seen it again and again, like his earlier dream. Now he ordered all the wise men to be brought to him to provide an interpretation. All the classes of Babylonian wise men, just like before, failed to provide Nebuchadnezzar with an interpretation. So he sought out Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar. He came and, told, and the king told his dream. By the way, 
Daniel, known as Belteshazzar. Daniel really prefers that Hebrew name. Yeah, he never uses Belteshazzar of himself. And even the Babylonians who were using his new name, Belteshazzar, were they were compelled to use his Hebrew name for clarity's sake. They had to say, Daniel, who is called Belteshazzar. Yeah. He just doesn't, he never really assimilated. <laughs> and you got to love that about him. The phrase, according to the name of my God, probably meant that Nebuchadnezzar's name also, in some sense, contained the same uh, divine name as Daniel's Babylonian name. The name Nebuchadnezzar means Nebu has protected my inheritance. And Belteshazzar means Bel protect his life. And Bel actually just means Lord. It's the same as the... Um, it was an Akkadian word, but it's very same as Baal in the Old Testament meant Lord of this, Lord of that. Uh, it's a as a title, not a name, and it could have been used either for the chief god Marduk or for the, the um, or for Nebu his son. So, if Daniel's name included Bel in there, then it's just saying Lord protect his life, and it could have been any of the Babylonian gods. So. That's all the connection he's saying. Nebuchadnezzar is not actually still saying that he's a worshiper of Nebu. He's just saying that's part of my name. Yeah. He began by complimenting Daniel, saying that a spirit of the holy gods is in him. It's a translation issue there too, because you could take that as spirit of the holy god, because the Hebrew in Hebrew Elohim is plural. Now. Uh, the equivalent Aramaic, Elohim, is still, it's plural. It means three, it means two or more. Okay, And so it, um, it could be that you should translate this, the spirit of the holy God, rather than the holy gods. And that will be in the margin, I think, of most of your Bibles. They also complimented Daniel that no mystery baffled him. So he confidently commanded Daniel to interpret the dream. Which he began to relate. It begins with a great tree. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold there was a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. It grew large, it became strong, and its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. And it may be reflected in your Bible, maybe it won't be, but uh, verses 11 and 12 there are in poetic form. And uh, describing this beautiful large tree. Now, Ezekiel had used the same sort of imagery to describe the Assyrian Empire. And this is something that Daniel would have recognized right away, that a tree and a kingdom in scripture are oftentimes equated. For instance, in Ezekiel 31, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and very high. Its top was among the clouds. The waters made it grow, the deep made it high. 
with its rivers continually extended all around its planting place and sent out channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore its height was loftier than all the trees of the field. Its boughs became many and branches long because of many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth and all the nations lived under its shade. So it was beautiful in its greatness and the length of its branches for its roots extended to many water. Ezekiel was describing the Assyrian Empire but you notice how he's using the same sort of language that it's spreading out like a tree. So tree equals kingdom as one, or king. As one has observed, the image here is that a protective shade of a leafy tree is a place of security, place of rest. So it began with a positive image. At that point, if Nebuchadnezzar had any inkling of understanding, he was probably going, oh, how nice. This great tree. This is wonderful. And maybe he's thinking, hmm, wonder if that's me. Okay. But in the dream, after the tree had grown tall and strong, after it spread out and had abundant fruit and foliage, and it gave shelter, then something happened to the tree. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my, on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, and let the stump with its roots be in the ground, be left, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. And the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy God is in you. So as Nebuchadnezzar was watching in his dream, an angel descended from heaven. Now, the term for angel here is a little unusual. Watcher. Isn't that an unusual way to refer to an angel? That's the only time, a matter of fact, in the, in the Bible that this occurs, though it does occur in the Dead Sea Scrolls, calling angels watchers. Uh, it's also used in apposition with Holy One, which is used in Scripture in multiple places for angels, like Deuteronomy 33 or Psalms 89. So there, it's clearly referring to angels. That's why the New American Standard and other translations call it an angelic watcher. Though literally it's a watcher. And here again we have a poem, but a poem that's uh, negative in nature. 
The, tree, the angel shouted, the tree should be chopped down, stripped off of its branches, fruit, and foliage, scattering all the birds and the, and the beasts. But the stump of the tree was to be left with a band of iron and bronze in the field, which would keep it from growing, not allow it to grow. You know, if you bound it. And someone, it doesn't elaborate, but someone's to be drenched with dew and eat grass with the beasts. That person's mind is to be changed from a human mind to a beast for seven periods of time. Now the Septuagint version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament here, has seven years, by the way. The angel announced the purpose of that judgment was that human beings need to know that God sovereignly rules mankind and places in power whomever he wishes. You watch political figures in huge meetings with thousands and thousands of people singing their praises and going, yay, I won. No, God placed in power, whether for blessing or for curse, whoever he chose. And he, he stood you up, he can take you down again. You see the fi same political figures months later and, and their approval ratings are in the basement and they can't even get 12 people together for a dinner. But <laughs> just as that way, God can, put, can stand them up and God can take them down. They need to give the glory where it belongs. He sovereignly rules over mankind. And again, Nebuchadnezzar placed his confidence in Daniel, even in the face of the total failure of the Babylonian wise men. Now we get into the Daniel section here. The Daniel moved to interpret this dream. In verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which all the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong. And your majesty has become great and reached the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Daniel was alarmed at the dream. And he only delivered the interpretation after encouragement from Nebuchadnezzar. He stated that he wished the, the interpretation referred to Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. Daniel... Um, Daniel had something that is lacking sometimes in us. Sometimes when we deliver the message, you know, that some person is sinning and is going to encounter God's wrath because of that, because of that sin. The thing that's lacking is not our, not our truth or our boldness. The thing that's lacking is our tears. Have we, you know, Daniel apparently has concern for Nebuchadnezzar 
which is an amazing thing. The guy who had destroyed his homeland and taken him captive. But, you know, apparently over the years there's a respect there, a concern. And Daniel was appalled at what at the message he's going to have to deliver. Said that he was appalled for a while, that he was speechless. And Nebuchadnezzar had to encourage him. Now, the warning, verse 23, And that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize the Most High as ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it's heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, my let my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there might be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel explained that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is going to be forced to live like an animal until he recognized that God ruled over humanity. That God was the one who gave kingdoms to men. Imagine that, if you will. Imagine for your, what it would be like to have your mind taken from you. That... Uh, you wouldn't care for hygiene. You wouldn't care for clothes. Um, you'd, you know, run wild in the in the wilderness, and you know your fingernails would grow absurdly long, and your hair would grow long and matted, and you eat grass, and you'd just, you know, cease to be a human being. You'd think like an animal. Would anybody like to sign up for that? <laughs> I wouldn't it's a pretty horrible judgment I can see why Daniel was appalled he said that judgment was going to be for seven times now I, my conviction is that's seven years because in Daniel 7.25 uh, a time times and half a time means three and a half years uh, we can compare that to Daniel 12.7 and Revelation 12.14 where it comes out to 1290 days that'd be three and a half times 360 plus one month um, so that's my conviction and I, apparently the translators of the Old Testament into Greek followed the same idea because the Septuagint back in verse 16 has seven years so that does make sense. I mentioned that there is also uh, the viewpoint that that's seven months, which is easier to understand how his kingdom would survive, but 
I don't think it's long enough for the symptoms that they talked about. You know, the absurdly long hair and fingernails, for instance. Seven months is hardly enough time. So, it's interesting, too, just in passing, that God uses animals to describe the world powers of history in Daniel 7. That, uh, you know, for with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, it was a glorious statue. When God describes them in chapter 7, it's monstrous animals. So. And who, what's the scripture called the last world leader? The Antichrist? Calls him the beast. You know, the beast. The wild beast. Yeah. But anyway, Daniel revealed that Nebuchadnezzar would not lose his kingdom. It would be restored to him when he realized that heaven rules. Heaven's a figure of speech for God. Now, what happened? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a son, Amel Marduk. Uh, and he's probably the one who acted during his illness. The, uh, the Jewish commentaries on scripture, the Midrashim, uh, state this, that all the seven years that passed over Nebuchadnezzar, they took evil Merodach, that's the Hebrew version, also known as Amel Marduk in their language, and made him king in the former Nebuchadnezzar's place. So during those seven years, there's a tradition that it makes sense that the king's son ruled in his place. What did they do with Nebuchadnezzar? Probably outside in the royal gardens. I would think they'd want to keep this out of the public view. You know, but... Uh, and they also wouldn't want him to uh, free range because then somebody would, might see him. So they probably kept him in the royal gardens, um, you know, outside but walled off from, from prying eyes. Daniel's advice to him was to repent of his sins and to do righteousness so that God might forestall his judgment. There's a principle there that one can avoid threatened punishment through repentance. You know, if God threatens, because of this sin, I'm going to punish you. But you change your mind and change your behavior, then why should God still punish you? In effect, you become a wrath dodger. <laughs> you can dodge God's wrath. <laughs> So, this is like God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or if at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I'll think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and deeds. Daniel knew that principle. Daniel was saying, Nebuchadnezzar, this doesn't have to happen this way. The problem here is your pride. The problem is you're not acknowledging God. You think you've done it all on your own. 
So if you change and if you show righteous, righteous behavior, then this doesn't have to happen this way. What happened with Nineveh? Remember them? And a, a probably rather weird-looking guy because he'd spent three days in the belly of a fish and stomach acids. Uh, Jonah. Uh, I'd repent if I saw him too. <laughs> but uh, when he showed up in Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, Iraq, when he showed up preaching, they repented. When uh, it said, God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Remember, that upset Jonah. Because Jonah was not fond of the, of the Assyrians, and he wanted them to get wiped out. And, you know, that's why, and Jonah said, See, Lord, that's why I ran the other direction. Because I knew you'd relent, and here I am, out hanging, you know. But it's a principle. And we all need to hold to that personally yeah, and nationally. That if we turn, it doesn't have to have, the, the threatened punishment doesn't have, have to happen to fall. Now, God relenting, does that mean God changed his mind? Did God not know what was going to go on? You know, was God sitting there biting his fingernails going, gee, I wonder what those people in Nineveh are going to do? Or what those people in Babylon are going to do. Or what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. No. God has always been firm. That if we repent. He doesn't judge. That's, always, that's a firm principle. Moreover he always knew the outcome. And planned accordingly. So what looks like a change from our perspective. Was actually God's plan right from the start. Now that was good advice. Daniel gave him. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar did not heed that good advice. So you pick up in verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Note that the, um, the person has changed here. We're now in third person, not first person anymore. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was crazy during that time. So he could, couldn't very well write about it. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and the nails like bird's claws. Probably Daniel is the one narrating here what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but only one year passed. God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent. Did he do it? No. Mm -mm. His walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon with a splendid view of the city. And he was thinking about this great city and his building projects. You know, of the uh, bricks that they've excavated from Babylon, 
nine-tenths of them have Nebuchadnezzar's name stamped on them. Yeah. I, and it, it just says, I am Nebuchadnezzar on every brick. <laughs> and I've read a, I read a couple of those uh, inscriptions and in translation. I don't read Akkadian, but, um, and I certainly don't read cuneiform, but I found translations online. And every other, every other uh, sentence is like, I did this, I did this, I did this. Nebuchadnezzar had a, an eye problem, definitely. Uh, yeah, he was proud of his accomplishments. And swelling with pride, he says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? Really? You didn't have an architect with you? Or if you got bricklayers or anything? No. He's, I've done it. As a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty. A lot of chest thumping going on there. Now, God says in Proverbs 6, He hates pride. Pride's one of the seven things God hates. James and Peter both remind us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. I remember just a small anecdote, but one of those occasional times where we get an ice storm in Dallas, and a friend of mine back when, uh, when I was young uh, were out driving around enjoying the fact that you could skid around parking lots and there's nothing there to hit, you know. So we were having fun. Then we got out and we were running and sliding. Steve Mickler, actually. And, uh, and uh, you know, he was like, look, you know, and he slide, you know, and everything. And said, oh, I'm so coordinated, I can, I, I can do this, you know. And I'm like, you yeah, know, be careful. So pride goes before fall. And he goes, oh, humbug. No sooner had he said that than his feet went out from under him. <laughs> he fell really hard. So <laughs> it works. <laughs> but Nebuchadnezzar had been, had been successful. Both militarily, militarily and with his building projects. Um, for instance, the Euphrates River was channeled right through the city of Babylon. It doesn't go there today. It's off to one side. But it was channeled right through the city of Babylon. That's no small feat. Rerouting the Euphrates. The beautiful Ishtar Gate was furnished with the finest of material. All the bricks were glazed. There were beautiful uh, sculptures inlaid in them of, of winged, be uh, winged lions and that sort of thing. Uh, the palace was, was the height of luxury. He had rebuilt or enhanced 20 temples in the environs of, of uh, Babylon itself. And the hanging gardens that he uh, built to, because his, uh, his Persian bride was, uh, was homesick for the mountains, or lush mountains of Persia. So he built the hanging gardens of Babylon, or had them built, I should say. They were considered one of the seven wonders of the world. So the walls of Babylon were 387 feet high. That's one-third the height of the Empire State Building. And that was, that was way back then. They were 87 feet thick. You could put a multi-lane highway on the top of the wall of Babylon. You could hold chariot races on top of the wall of Babylon. And they were 60 miles in circumference. 
So, the egotism of this verse, it is totally in, keep, in keeping with his inscriptions. This was how Nebuchadnezzar thought. He was very proud of himself. And while he was still speaking, the voice came from heaven, declared he was removed from power. Said he was driven from mankind, forced to live of beasts, eat grass like cattle, until he acknowledged the Most High rules mankind. Now, there's a name for this madness. It's called Insania Zoanthropica, or Boanthropy is another term. The subjects basically believe themselves to be animals. It is a rare condition, but it has been documented, even in modern times. Uh, one form of this gives rise to some of our mythology, and that is a form, uh, a form called lycanthropy, where the subjects believe themselves to be wolves. Ever heard of werewolves? That's where the legend came from, almost certainly. It was people who believe themselves to be wolves and so lived like wild animals. The Old Testament scholar R.K. Harrison was able to observe a mental patient with this disorder during World War II and writes about it in his introduction to the Old Testament. Um, now, some people scoff at this and say, well, where's the written record? Well, actually, there are written sources that refer to Nebuchadnezzar's illness, but they do it in a very guarded manner that avoids discussing his madness. Uh, we, as Americans, should certainly acknowledge that it's possible for a world ru ruler to, um, to go insane. Remember George III of England during our revolution? He was insane. He had a blood disorder that drove him insane. He would carry on conversations with street lamps, stuff like that. Yeah, he was definitely, definitely crackers. Uh, and uh, that's the medical term for it, by the way. Uh, you know, and who knows? We might be part, a loyal part of the British Empire today, if if they had had a ruler that was, you know, on a firm footing uh, mentally. But Josephus quoted the Babylonian historian Barossus to the effect that Nebuchadnezzar was ill during the later part of his reign. That's a tactful way to put it. Uh, Eusebius quotes. Uh, Abidensis, that during the later part of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar was, quote, close quote, possessed by some god or another. Well, in the ancient world, that's another way of saying he was insane. So, there is some reference to this. It's not entirely silent um, on, on his illness. So the judgment was fulfilled immediately. He began to live outdoors. He began to eat grass. His hair grew long resembled feathers it was so matted and his nails grew long resembling claws the bible spares us the gory details of those seven years couldn't have been pretty but at the end of that period and we pick up again with the first person uh, at the end of this period I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then this is in poetic form. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. For among the inhabitants of earth, uh, no one, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. Uh, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. At this point, we have Nebuchadnezzar's testimony again. His reason returned to him, and he praised God. He honored God for having a rule that endured forever, a kingdom for all generations, not just short-lived like the human rules are, but, you know, an eternal rule. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's empire really uh, didn't survive, I believe it was more than 25 years after his death before the Persians took him over. So, human empires, very transient, no matter how glorious. God's empire, forever. Puny mankind is like nothing compared to God. And he's sovereign. His will rules. Now, here you have, at least touched on, the subject of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I know I've talked about that before, so I won't dwell on that. But I, I, I love the balance the Bible strikes. Because the Bible doesn't see that as a contradiction. That God is so in control that God grants us free will and, and doesn't need to worry about what we're going to do. And we never surprise him. So he is entirely in control. He's so wise and he's so powerful he can ordain that we have freedom to make decisions and even disobey him. And he's still going to accomplish his purpose. There is no way that you can frustrate him. No way you can successfully def de defy him. And no one has the right to question him. So you can argue with God. I'm not saying you can't. He can take it. But you're likely to, to lose. <laughs> when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged God's sovereignty, he was reestablished in his sovereignty. He recognized who he was dependent upon. And that's why he praised and exalted and honored God. Because God's ways are just. God's ways are true. And now, Nebuchadnezzar knew that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. God told Isaiah, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And Jesus has the, the last word. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Matthew 23. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So now a humbled Nebuchadnezzar gives proper respect to the Most High God, the King of Heaven. Someday, perhaps, we'll meet Nebuchadnezzar in Heaven. I, um, I, have, ho I have high hopes of that. I really do. Now, it was interesting as I read through the commentators on this. Yeah, there's about an even split. Some think he's going to be there, some think he isn't. I found myself reflecting. I'm sure glad that our uh, eternal destiny is not determined by a committee of theologians. You know. But how do you apply this? Well, 
prophetically, you know, I think the Antichrist is going to be the epitome of pride. He's going to demand to be worshipped. And he's a beast, you know. The scripture calls him that. But his pride's going to lead to a fall, isn't it? When Jesus Christ comes again, his career is cut short. Personally, how do we apply this? Well, Major Ian Thomas said, Make sure that it's God's trumpet you're blowing. If it's only yours, it won't wake the dead, and it will simply disturb the neighbors. <laughs> okay, that's true. We need to make sure that it's God's trumpet we're blowing. We're not great. I'm not great. I am certainly not great. Jesus Christ is great. He is the king. He is the one who died on the cross for you. His is the greatness. I think C.S. Lewis summed it up real well. The essential vice, the all utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness are mere flea biters in comparison. It's through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see what is above you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we acknowledge that you are indeed the sovereign Lord of all. That we are as nothing compared to you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We acknowledge the justice and the majesty of your reign. And we acknowledge that every good gift we have, we receive from you. And so, Lord, help us to never boast as if we didn't receive it. May we always honor and exalt and lift you up as the King of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen.